My dear brethren and sisters in Christ Jesus, just a couple of items in relation to the angels that we never touched upon yesterday, although we intended to do so. And number one, those angels are given names, as we have seen. Uh, there was Gabriel, for example. And in the eighth chapter of Daniel, and at verse 13, we have another angel who is also named for us, and who introduces us to some subjects of deep importance. And in the eighth chapter of Daniel, and at verse 13, Daniel says, I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that servant saint which spake, How long shall it shall be the image concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Until two thousand three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So here we have a conversation between two angels. And one angel wants to know how long. And when you go to the uh, record of Peter, Peter tells us that the angels were looking into these things. They desired to know. And the Lord himself says in Mark chapter 13, that of the uh, day and hour knoweth no man, no not the angels in heaven. But those angels are very excited, the same as we are upon the earth. And they keenly look into the things that have been revealed to them and for the time periods when these things shall be fulfilled. And it's rather wonderful, isn't it, to consider those angels in the heavens, considering the very things that we're considering and looking into the signs of the times as they must do so as we find from Peter's words. And here we have the conversation between two of them. And notice that one saint speaking unto another saint said to that certain saint. But in the margin of your Bible, should you have an Oxford wide margin Bible, in the margin of your Bible, you're given the uh, name of that saint. Instead of that certain saint, the name of that saint was given. And he is the numberer. He is in charge of the time periods, evidently. And he is called the numberer. So one angel went to the other angel whose name was the numberer and he says, how long? He desires to know how long. And in relation to this particular prophecy, he gives him a time period, 2,300 years. He says the sanctuary shall be trodden underfoot. And you notice that in this prophecy, the word sanctuary occurs twice. You have it in verse 11, you have it in verse 13. But in the Hebrew, two different words. And the sanctuary of verse 11 is the temple. But the sanctuary of verse 13 can relate to either the holy place or the holy city or the holy people. But we're not left in doubt as to what that refers to because the Lord Jesus Christ quoted that prophecy in the 21st chapter of Luke in verse 24 when he says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So said the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. And those words were a citation of this very prophecy. The sanctuary shall be trodden underfoot. The holy place or the holy city shall be trodden underfoot. And the Lord says it would be trodden underfoot until the times of the Gentiles. 
And here this number says that is a period of 2,300 days or 2,300 years. And the initial prophecy of that chapter is a prophecy that describes the goat and the ram warring together. And we are told that the goat represents the power of Grisha and the ram represents the power of Persia. And therefore I believe that that would be the time whereby we must date this 2,300 days or 2,300 years. And it was in the year, it was in the battle of Guericus and in the battle of Isis that the power of Persia was defeated by Alexander the Great. And the battle of Granicus took place in the year 333 BC and the battle of Isis 334 BC. And that opened the whole of the Middle East to Alexander the Great and his army swept down through Palestine and they took possession of Egypt. 333. If you add onto BC 333, the period of 2,300 years, it brings you to 1967. And therefore, as we know what happened in 1967, we have a remarkable fulfillment, I believe, an initial fulfillment of that particular prophecy. As a matter of fact, long before 1967, when I was uh, uh, studying the prophecy of Daniel, and as I've got marked in the margin of my Bible, and I've left it there, though the date is wrong, long before 1967, I had determined that Granicus would have been the period of time, and I had taken the period of time from Granicus to be 1966. I was out a year, you see, because I didn't make provision for the year that uh, the extra year that should be added on. Because actually, Granicus to uh, 1967 is 2,300 years. I had added up wrong. I didn't have a computer. You know, those adding machines in those days. And I'd added that up wrong. But I've got here 1966. It was actually 1967. And we're living in marvellous times. We're living in the times when the angel numberer is taking hold of events and bringing them to fruition at the very time in which Yahweh has determined it. And when you come to another prophecy, Joel chapter 3, you find that here we have the same principle advanced as we are seeing happening in the earth at this particular time. So in Joel chapter 3, the prophet, the prophet Joel speaks of the very things that we have seen in our day and generation. And again he uses the word behold. And remember I said we should take heed wherever that word is used. Because the prophet in using that word behold wants us to rivet our attention upon what he is saying. So we read behold in those days and at that time when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. First the people, then the city. Judah the people, Jerusalem the city. I will bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And I will bring all nations, gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Look, we're seeing those things taking place now. We saw the people return in 1917 onwards. We saw the city of Jerusalem delivered from its captivity in 1967. 
We're seeing the eyes of all nations riveted upon the Middle East exactly as Joel said 2,500 years ago. We've even got the time period here in Daniel's prophecy concerning these particular times. But what I want to emphasize is not so much that time period, but the name that's given to that angel. His is the name, the numberer. And you know, in the days of Samson, at least before the days of Samson, in the days of Samson's father Manoah, an angel appeared unto him. And Manoah wanted to know the name of that angel. And he gave him the name. The name of that angel, as given then, was wonderful because he did wondrously, and his name was wonderful. So you see, here are certain names given to those angels. Wonderful, Gabriel. And you know, the Lord Jesus Christ in himself, he gathers to himself all those names, and they are invested in him. Because you know what Isaiah 9 and verse 6 says, he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The Mighty God is Ael Gibor. The mighty God is the same as Gabriel. Gabriel is the mighty God. It means Ael Gibor. And here you have the same titles invested upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So they have their names. They have their individual identities. The same as we will in the age to come. And we will know one another. And won't it be a glorious thing, brethren and sisters? I often think this, with my own ecclesia back home of Woodville, you feel very close to brethren with whom you have worked. And I've often thought what a wonderful thing it will be in the age to come, clothed upon with immortality, going forth as the Elohim of the age to come, in company with those we've laboured with now, and going forth to proclaim the message in every part of the earth, and operating as the elect of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Elohim of the age to come. A wonderful thing to bear in mind. And as we gather together in a Bible school like this, and we're drawn so closely together because we're reading and studying the Word of God together, that is the great principle that, cons- that, uh, that motivates my mind at times like this. The, the, the friendships in the truth, the relationships we establish now, they have the seeds of permanency in them. They're going to go on for ages upon ages as the immortal angels of the age to come. Now let's see some more of the work of those angels before we deal with the signs of the times. And in the seventh chapter again of verse th- <coughs> Daniel, and of verses 13 and 14, we see the angels conducting the Lord Jesus Christ before the Father in the heavens. We read in verse 13, I saw in the night visions. Remember what the Lord said to the apostles, the night cometh, he said. So long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But he says, I'm going to go to the Father. Then night comes. Now here you see, I saw in the night visions. And behold, one like unto the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now there's the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavens being presented to the Father with a company of angels with him conducting the, the Son in triumph to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
A few weeks earlier, brethren and sisters, he was dead upon the cross with people mocking at him. A few weeks earlier, he was like that. Now he's brought into the very presence of the great creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh himself, conducted there by the angels, and they're presented to the Father, and he has given all authority in heaven and in earth, as Peter says. And the very affairs of the world are now subject to his control under the angels that still remain the ministering spirits. And so when he returns, he returns in the power of his Father. He returns as the Ancient of Days to manifest the power of Yahweh in the earth as we see in verse 22. And so we see the work of the angels, even with the Lord Jesus Christ, conducting him in the presence of the Father. And if you like to take this subject up further, you can do so with the greatest of prophets. Go to the life of the Lord. See the angelic ministration in his own life. See him in the garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his feelings as blood, as it were, the sweat streams from his forehead, and the angel is there to strengthen him. Hear the voice that sounded like thunder when I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Consider the angels that sang at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that excitedly saw the birth of the Son and realized the time for the consummation of all the work that they put into the affairs of men would be brought to a fruition through the one that was being born. Or consider him on the Mount of Olives and he's about to ascend into heaven and the angels are there to speak to the apostles. Or at these two where the angels were there and now see him, he's in heaven now and the angels are conducting him before the presence of the Father. And so angelic ministration is in the life of all the worthies of old and in our lives as well. Thank God. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, and at verse 16, we have some words of the Lord that apply to the Lord Jesus and the apostles in those days, but we can apply these things to ourselves as we come to consider the remarkable times in which we are living. And the Lord said to the apostles, Blessed are your eyes, Matthew 13 and verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Do not those words apply to ourselves as we see the signs of the times about us? Would not Ezekiel delight to see the uprise of Russia? Would not Isaiah delight to see the return of Israel back to the land and the revival of that nation? Would not Daniel like to see the things that we are seeing in the earth at this present time? Verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them. Would not Brother Thomas and Brother Roberts thrill to the things that we see in the earth at this present time? Of course they would. And so we should thrill. But I'll tell you something that is a danger. And that is this. That the signs of the times are happening so rapidly that we're getting used to them and we're taking them for granted and the power and the excitement of it all escapes us. Because every day there are signs that speak of Christ's return and we say it, we speak of this so frequently that I believe that the power of it all escapes us. And therefore we must centre our attention upon the future in a very marked way that we never lose the excitement of the truth. 
And so we want to deal just briefly with some of the signs of the times that we have in the book of Daniel. And first of all, we'll look at this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, never forgot that dream. It reads as though Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream and he wanted to be reminded of the dream. But so powerfully was that dream impressed upon his mind, I don't think that he ever forgot it. And it doesn't say that he ever forgot it. At no time does he say that he ever forgot it. In fact, just the contrary. And then he says to the Chaldeans in verse 5, The thing is gone from me, if you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces. Now he doesn't mean when he says the thing is gone from me that he's forgotten the dream. What he means is the word has gone forth. The decree has gone forth. You tell me the dream and the interpretation or you will be destroyed. And you know when Daniel stood before the king he endorsed this interpretation of it. So you see what Nebuchadnezzar wants he wants to be absolutely certain that the interpretation is sound. Therefore, he does, not, he does not altogether trust his Chaldeans and wise men. So he says, as a, as a token that you can really give a proper interpretation, tell me the dream. And they say it's a ridiculous thing to ask. And of course it was until Daniel the prophet stood before the king and told him the meaning of the dream and told him the dream itself. And, and the king recognized that dream when Daniel told it to him. But what Daniel said in verse 28 is something that's very important in these days. There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. That's the key to your dream. That's the key to the meaning of that image. What the king saw will happen in the last days. The king saw that image stand up complete. He saw the image complete. And Daniel says, that's what's going to happen in the last days. And that, brethren and sisters, is what we are seeing forming at this particular time. He explains that dream. O thou, O king, verse 31, sawest and behold a great image, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. It was exceeding luminous. It had a tremendous glory. And it was frightening in its aspect. And you can imagine the king upon his bed asleep with a vision like that over his head, a dream like that. And he's startled at the glory of that great and terrible image that he sees. And he's fearful because the appearance of it is terrible. And he sees that stone cut out of the mountain without hands that destroys the image upon the feet and brings all the power of it crumbling together. So it is the purpose of Yahweh that such a confederacy of nations should take place. And I want to quote to you a passage from a book, Elpis Israel. This particular Elpis Israel is a very treasured possession of mine because it's the oldest Elpis Israel in Australia. It belonged to my grandfather and my father lent it to me and then by a strange coincidence he could never find it again. So uh, it, it is in my possession now, you see. And here is a statement that Brother Thomas says in the Elpis Israel that unfortunately you won't find in the copy that you purchased today. And it's dealing with the autocrat of Russia. 
he or a successor will will to set them in Constantinople for magnitude of power and extent of dominion such as the world has never yet witnessed since Nimrod hunted men as beasts before the Lord. Russia's mission is to reduce all the nations of the old world so Britain and her dependencies into one imperial dominion represented in the book of Daniel by the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Licentiousness will again break loose. Is that true today? Has licentiousness broken loose? And in the Malay, the Austro-Papal Empire will succumb. Where is it today? The contest will end in the discomfiture of the continent. And Russia, like a mighty inundation, will overflow the nations and dash her waves upon the shores from the Danish belts to the Dardanelles. Britain will rage and shake the world with her thunder. But as in the days of Napoleon, her alliance, the common market, that's not in the book, her alliance will be fatal to them that trust her and only precipitate their fall. Let Russia, however, beware how he lays hands on Syria. Europe and Turkey will be his. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya and at length Israel. But in Palestine the power of Russia will be broken. Not bad for 120 or more years ago. And there we have an interpretation of this image. Now again look a little more carefully at verse, uh, verse 37. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom of power and strength and glory. See how bold Daniel is, how fearless he is. That king is a dictator. That king has ordered the death of all the wise men. Now comes a young teenager into the presence of that king, and he says, You think that your power and ingenuity your strength of purpose and your wisdom have, have given you this power. Get it out of your mind, Nebuchadnezzar. The God of Israel has given you that. The God of heaven has given you that. He's given you a kingdom, power, strength and glory. And you notice in verse 44, he's going to take it away from him. The God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. We're going to smash all those images. Smash the power of that image. Together with a head that is representative of you. What does Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 3? He makes another image. He compels people to bow down to it. But that image is not of composite metals. It's all of gold. Thou art the head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to fight destiny. He makes an image all of gold. Representative of the power of Babylon. It will never be overthrown. He built Babylon so that no one could destroy it. So he thought. He built that image all of gold and he commanded people to bow down before him. And all did so, as we saw, except Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The God of heaven gave you a kingdom. The God of heaven will take it away. And again, notice what uh, is stated in this, uh, in this image. Notice how it speaks of communism. I brought this out in the lecture, but I do so again because I think this is quite significant. He's dealing with the toes in verse 42. And this is the kingdom, and it becomes kingdoms that are partly strong and partly broken. And he's dealing with kings, you see. And he's showing the deterioration in the form of rule. That's one part of the image. A deterioration in the form of rule. Thou art the head of gold. But down here, you got feet 
part of iron and part of grey. Thou art the head of gold. That means, in Daniel chapter 5, for the majesty that he gave Nebuchadnezzar, all people, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew? Whom he would he kept alive? Whom he would he set up? Whom he would he put down? That's the head of gold. Dictatorial power. Autocratic power. And down here, feet part of iron and part of clay. So we read in verse 43, And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with murray clay, they, the kings, the kingdoms, the authorities, shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. And the word is Enosh. The weakest of men. The lowest of men. So the rulers will mingle with the lowest of men. That's democracy or communism. When the rulers mingle with the lowest of men. And they, uh, they combine to set up a form of rule. And that's what Daniel told the king they should do. In the deterioration of the form of rule that would be set up. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with marring clay. Let us turn to what was said at 1848. See if it's true to the facts of today. Well, Brother Thomas wrote this. In 1848, there were two, two men arose who were going to powerfully influence people that followed on. One was Karl Marx and one was Dr. Thomas. Both wrote in 1848. In 1848, the, uh, the Communist Manifesto was published by Karl Marx. In 1848, Elpis Islam was published by Brother Thomas. In 1848, there were revolutions right throughout Europe as the result of the work of Karl Marx. But those revolutions were put down with an iron hand. And for a time, communism could not prevail. Brother Thomas Ray. In 1848, every throne was shaken to its foundations. The events of this wonderful year are too recent to require to be chronicled in this place. It will be enough to say that the democracy... Communism broke loose and commenced a movement which, although it has been restrained to prevent it progressing too rapidly, cannot be suppressed until the little horn or two-horned beast and his prophet be destroyed to the end and the dominion of the ten horn be taken away. That book is saying in 1848 that as far as communism is concerned, Though they have restrained it, it's got a purpose to play in the plan of God and will be a means whereby that image will be welded together. That's the heritage that we have in the pioneer, the pioneer literature of the truth. And of course, again, you've got the image standing upon two feet that Brother Thomas aligns in, uh, in uh, Exposition of Daniel with the, the divided Europe. And remarkably, Brother Thomas points out that Europe must be divided into two parts answering to the two legs of the image. And on the western side, there would be the power of Germany in the ascendancy, and on the eastern side, the power of Russia. They both will be brought under the influence of Russia. There will, he says, be a division. While the head, breast, arms, belly, thighs, legs and toes have all existed, the feet have yet to be formed. The feet have yet to be formed. The toes have existed, but the two feet have yet to be formed. 
you are seeing that happen before your eyes. And that's the remarkable times in which we are living. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, and verse 26, Um, in the seventh chapter, Daniel, and verse 26, I think I'll have to leave that because time is getting away from me. Actually, you know, that verse there that I was going to quote, dealing with the uh, judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it under the end. The interpretation of that verse is the key to part three of Elpis Israel. Many brethren fail to understand that third part of Elpis Israel. It's the key to the system of prophecy, Brother Thomas outlines in Elpis Israel. You know what he says in one place in Elpis Israel, you who have read it? He says, as we have seen elsewhere, the Austro-German power must be overthrown by foreign sword, so that when that is completed, the Gobe ship will be taken over by Russia. It's based upon this passage of scripture. And that passage of scripture provides the key that will unlock that third part of Elpis Israel. And I believe, give you an outstanding understanding of the uh, plan of prophecy contained in the word of God. But my time is going too quickly for me to deal with that, unfortunately. So we'll just move on to the 8th chapter and verse 25. And here we have the latter day manifestation of the fourth beast the latter manifestation of the fourth beast. And the latter day manifestation of the fourth beast requires that Constantinople be free to the Turk. And when Russia moves down and takes Constantinople, Russia will be in the eastern capital of the Roman Empire and will comprise, it, it will comprise the, um, the latter day manifestation of the fourth beast. And in this latter manifestation of the fourth beast, we are told what he's going to do. Through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He's going to cause craft to prosper in his hand. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the same word is used for religion. So he's going to cause religion to prosper in his hand, in his power. He's going to help religion. What religion? One religion. The religion he's going to help will be Roman Catholicism, by which there will be welded together the image that Daniel saw. Now that's his policy to cause craft to prosper in his hand. He's going to magnify himself in his heart and by peace destroy many. What is Russia saying today? All we want is peace. They don't say what peace they want. All they want is peace in the sense that they want peace from freedom for war. They are looking askance at America because America's building up its armaments in a most unrighteous way. So they want peace, and we will America, please not make so many rifles. And that, by peace he shall destroy many. And we're reaching into that. I believe even the peace in the Middle East is coming into the pattern of peace that's going to flow through the whole world until they say peace and safety, then that sudden destruction comes upon them. But, says Paul, that day shall not overcome you. So you see, by peace he shall destroy many, and he shall stand up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken without hand. Without hand. The little stone was cut out of the mountain without hand. By divine process. That's the way he's going to be broken. By a divine process. And before he's going to be broken, he's going to occupy Persia. 
We are told that in the seventh chapter of Daniel and at verse seven. Because here we have the fourth beast in the three beasts of Daniel chapter seven. In the lion, in the, uh, in the bear, in the leopard, and in the fourth beast. You notice incidentally the eagle doesn't get a mention. In the fourth beast. Now the, this fourth beast, he says, is dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. That's what it did. It stamped the residue with the feet of it. Keep that in your mind. In a moment I'll refer to it. In verse 19, its teeth are of iron and its nails are brass. So you see, as far as this fourth beast is concerned, which represented the Roman Empire, it is also going to represent the Grecian Empire. There's going to be a unification of the West and the, uh, and the East. The iron and the brass. Constantinople was the capital of the East. Rome was the capital of the West. So this, this fourth beast has teeth of iron and it has nails of brass. And it's going to bring about though that the two divisions of the nations will remain, in itself will extend its influence right over the Western world until it is brought about the confederacy of that image. But notice this important principle. It stamps the residue with the feet of it. The Roman Empire extended right throughout here, but it didn't occupy Persia. At no stage in the history of the Roman Empire was Persia ever occupied. It's an amazing fact of history that at no stage was a mighty Roman Empire able to occupy Persia. But the requirements of the prophecy are that it does so. It's going to stamp the residue with the feet of it. It's going to consume all those other beasts. And one of those beasts, of course, represented the power of Persia, the bear. It represented the power of Persia. But at no stage did Rome occupy Persia. So the time must come when the Romans, when the fourth day, when the latter day manifestation of the fourth beast will occupy Persia. And I believe it will stamp it with the residue of its feet. And now another important thing is emerging in the history of our contemporary times as as Daniel saw it. You know in the 11th chapter of Daniel, he deals with the king of the north. He deals with the king of the north early in the chapter. He points out how that on the death of Alexander the Great, the empire will be divided into four parts, answering uh, under the four generals of Alexander's army. The two of those nations occupy the prophecy of Daniel 11, the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the south was Egypt and it occupied this area here up, apart, up about the point of the Gaza Strip today. It was under the Ptolemies and they became the king of the south. The king of the north, the initial king of the north, extended his influence right throughout this area here, right throughout Syria, right throughout Iraq, uh, right throughout Iran, until you come to uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan of today. The initial king of the north occupied all that area there. And now, in the 11th chapter of Daniel, and at verse 40, in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, you read, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, 
and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. In verse 36, you'll have a king, neither north nor south. The king of the north has disappeared. But now at the time of the end, the king of the north emerges again. And isn't it an amazing thing that we see that at the present moment, all this area here, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all that area there is in a state of flux. Overnight it's happening. Afghanistan, Pakistan, already links with, with Russia. And right throughout this area here, the same thing is a, applies. And so you see, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him. Now you may all know what I'm telling you, but just to, for those that may not, the word him there does not mean the king of the north. The king of the north disappeared. You see in verse 36, it's only the king, it's neither north or south. And that king of verse 36 is the Roman power and occupation of Constantinople. That's the king of 36. The Roman power and occupation of Constantinople. And when Rome passed off the sea, Turkey took over. And Turkey was right down as far as this area here. And at the time of the south, the king of the, uh, the time of the end, the king of the south, the power and occupation of Egypt, Britain, would push it, push at him, Turkey. And Britain from Egypt pushed at Turkey, drove Turkey from off the Middle East, allowed the Jewish people to return, and Turkey occupies that part. Now the king of the north is to come against him, Turkey, like a whirlwind. Like a whirlwind. And for the first time in history, really, armies marched like a whirlwind. They got the speed to do it. And he's going to come against him like a whirlwind and he's going to occupy Turkey at the time of the end. And he shall enter into the glorious land. He shall move down into this area here. Many shall be overthrown. These countries around here, Syria and Lebanon. And he enters into the glorious land. But Edom, Moab and the children of Ammon, the powers on the eastern side of the river Jordan, they escape out of his hands. But he stretches forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. The land of Egypt shall not escape. And we are seeing within the last few months Egypt changing sides and Egypt turning to the west and this prophecy beginning to be fulfilled. You know, I've got a book home written against Brother Thomas' interpretation of this after World War One, and it says that it would be impossible for this to be Russia. Absolutely impossible. Because the power of the north has to come down with many ships. And it says Russia hasn't got a navy. Is Russia a navy today? I preserved that book. I thought it's valuable. And that was what was said then. Look at the Russian navy today. Show me a part of that prophecy that is not in its incipient fulfillment today. Take Egypt for an example. Take what you read in verse 43. Egypt, the Libyans, the Ethiopians. All now in the uh, in the position that uh, the prophecy requires. The Libyans and Ethiopians at his steps. And this is what is happening at this present time as we uh, follow through the prophecy of Daniel until the tidings out of the east and west, north trouble him and he goes forth with great fury to make away many and he's destroyed upon the mountains of Israel. And I believe those tidings out of the east will be Jesus Christ and the saints. I believe that the tidings out of the east will relate to Daniel himself that will be in the earth at that particular time. And that Daniel will be there with the company of the elect 
with ourselves, brethren and sisters, if we are faithful. It is a wonderful prophecy, is the prophecy of Daniel. Wonderful in the revelation that it gives of the future, marvellous in the exhortation that is contained therein. Daniel, when he received these prophecies towards the end of his life, was over 90 years of age. He had lived a life of activity in the truth. In youth he had shown maturity. In manhood he had been strong in faith. In middle age he was an example to his followers. In old age he was an inspiration. That's the man Daniel as he emerges from the book. And as we read that prophecy and as we see these things come to pass, how do we react in these things? What is our attitude towards God and the Ecclesia? Are we motivated by the same spirit of faith as did he? Are we governed by the principles of righteousness as was Daniel and have we got the dedication and the determination and courage and faith to see beyond any problem to the glory of the age to come? Brethren and sisters, if your Bible school means anything, it means this, that as far as your individual ecclesia is concerned, you go back as a cell of strength in that ecclesia. That's what you're here for, not to learn what that book says. I've studied that book very closely. I've marked up every part of it. But not to tell you what it's all about, but because I might like to know what's there myself. And I find that as that power of that book motivates my life, so I can become an assistant to someone else. That is the purpose of a Bible school. Daniel's faith and character is an example to us. He reflected the inspiration that he received from Almighty God. We read of Noah that he walked with God. We read of Abraham that he walked before God. We read of Moses that he endured because he saw the invisible. We read of Paul that he laboured because he looked not at the things that are seen but at the things that are unseen. Daniel spake with God and so can we in prayer. Daniel hearkened to God and so can we in the word of God. Daniel walked with God and we can do the same. Daniel manifested God and that is what we are called upon to do. So as we depart, brethren and sisters, each to our own centres, that the inspiration of these things motivate us. Let us be excited by the word of God and so moulded by that word that Yahweh Yatsah, the moulder, the shape of our lives, may shape us in a fashion that will please him. And at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we may be all gathered together as one in that kingdom. It's been a great pleasure for both Doris and myself to be with you. We hate to say goodbye. We do hope that we will never see you again. We hope that the Lord, until the coming of the Lord. We hope that the Lord Jesus Christ may come, render these efforts unnecessary, and that in the age to come, the time that we have shared together may find, find profit in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Well, brethren and sisters, we thank Brother Peirce for what he has given us against this morning. And I'm sure if we are ever to be excited by listening to those things of the Word, we must have been this morning. And we are as sorry to see him go as we possibly can be, I'm sure.
when he has to go back to Australia. But we echo his words. We hope that next time we see him, by the grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father, it will be in that glorious kingdom of righteousness and peace. Well, there's very little time left, brethren, but uh, we will allow just a moment for any questions you may have. And please, speak up, because I'm one of those who are a bit thick. Both ways. Uh, is there any significance in the fact that the community fall from their heads down and destroyed in the feet of <coughs> The question is, is there any significance that the image was formed from the head down and destroyed from the feet up? There is a very great significance in that. Uh, number one, of course, it, uh, the image does, in addition to reveal what shall be in the latter days, it does reveal the progress of history, and therefore the head was formed, it was formed from the head up, uh, the head down rather, uh, until you come to the feet. But as you would observe on the image, gold is a very heavy metal. So I am told I've never had sufficient of it to find out. But gold is a very heavy metal. But you come down to feet of iron and clay here, it's the image is top heavy, and therefore you see, uh, the, though, it's, uh, though it was built from the head and moved downwards, the feet, of course, are the weak part of that image, and so the image was crushed from the feet and was destroyed from the feet. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as you will know, was a dictator. So also will the Lord Jesus Christ be a dictator. And uh, therefore the head was of gold, whereas the feet are of of a mixture of iron and clay. And hence, the fact that it was hit upon the feet, it was top-heavy, it was soon overthrown, and uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the stone, uh, grinding at the powder, became a mountain and filled the whole earth. And therefore, I believe that it's significant that it came from the top to the bottom, uh, and then from the bottom it was overthrown to the top.